Sometimes life is very disappointing. Things do not always turn out the way that we seemed or the way that we had imagined that they would. We can have a great anticipation for the future, looking forward to a particular event. And when it finally happens, we're disappointed in the way in which everything is turning out. We are in a point in David's life when he is finally going to become king over Israel. After the many years of anticipation, the day has finally arrived. And so we might wonder, what is in store for David now that Saul has died? Will there finally be a smooth transition to David becoming the king of Israel? One might think so, or certainly hope so. I would imagine that David thought that now that Saul is off the scene, his great enemy, as it were, the persecutor that he was facing, now that he is gone, perhaps David can finally come to reign and be at peace. But unfortunately, that is not the case. David's kingdom does not begin without his struggles. The emphasis this morning is not the effect that those struggles have upon David. This morning, it's not really about David and what he anticipates or how he responds to the situation that he is facing. Rather, the focus is upon the reality of those struggles themselves. It is the mere fact that the struggles exist that we're to keep in mind. We're to see the obstacles that David is facing. We're to keep in mind that God's kingdom is established through many hardships. And there are very many practical lessons for us to learn as we think about God's kingdom being established. We used as a call to worship this morning a prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. That is, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Now that Jesus had died and rose again, the scripture says that all things are put under Jesus, and yet we do not yet see all things put under him. It means the kingdom has been inaugurated. It means the kingdom has been brought into existence. It means that Jesus is reigning, but not fully, completely, as he is going to reign when he returns. We are in a period of transition. And in that transition period, there are a lot of struggles. There are a lot of obstacles. There are a lot of difficulties that we must face. And we learn that that's the way in which the kingdom comes. And so we learn from the Davidic kingdom, and God's establishing that kingdom about struggles and how to deal with those struggles. So the theme this morning is the consideration of kingdom struggles. The first point is that David experiences kingdom struggles despite the fact that David's kingdom is established at the Lord's direction. David is doing all that God tells him to do, and yet David is going to find struggles. If you look at 2 Samuel chapter 2, reading at verse 1, it says, After this, David inquired of the Lord, Shall I go up into any of the cities of Judah? And the Lord said to him, Go up. David said, To which shall I go up? And he said, To Hebron. So the scripture says that um, after this, after this, the after this is after Saul's death, after the conquering of Israel by the Philistines after all of the untoward situations that happened to Jonathan. Now that regime is passed. And it says, after this, David asks a simple question. Should I return to the land of Judah? If you remember, he's now in the land of the Philistines. 
And he says, should I go back to the land of Judah? Dr. Benoit in his commentary writes, and I quote, Although it must have been clear to David that he and his men should no longer remain in Ziklag, the city given to them by Achish and recently destroyed by the Amalekites, it was not so clear where they should go or what they should do next. This is the setting for David's first recorded action subsequent to learning of Saul's death. David did not want to repeat the mistake he had made when he went to Gath without first seeking the Lord's guidance. So the very first thing that he was to request is the Lord's guidance. When David inquired whether he should return to Judah, the Lord told him that he should. And when David asked to what town he should go, he was told to go to Hebron. This meant that David's decision to move from Ziklag to Hebron was not, in the first instance, a pragmatic political calculation, but rather an act of obedience to an instruction he had received from the Lord. End quote. So the point here is that David doesn't make the same mistake that he had made before. And that is to run ahead of God and make decisions on his own. When he left Judah and went to Gath, he did so out of his own inclination of what was best and what was right. Well, that didn't turn out very well, and David realized that he didn't. So now, David, even though it seems quite apparent as to what he should do, doesn't run ahead of God, asks what God would have him to do, and specifically where David was to go. God tells him that he's to go to Hebron. The point is that this is not a political calculation, as Dr. Vinoy points out. This isn't David's scheming, but this is the will of God being expressed as to what uh, David should do. So David responds by settling in Hebron, lock, stock, and barrel as God had directed. Verse 2. So, so, this is the consequential action of David based upon God's revelation to him. So David went up there, and his two wives also, Ahinoam of Jezreel and Abigail, the, the widow of Nabal of Carmel. Even David brought up his men who were with him, everyone with his household, and they lived in the towns of Hebron. There was a total resettlement of David from the land of the Philistines now to the land of Hebron. There was no hesitation on David's part to follow the Lord's instruction and to fulfill his commands. David must have felt a sense of security and confidence that his kingdom was going to be established. If you remember, when David goes to Gath, he's at wit's end, thinking that he's going to be destroyed and that he will never become king. Now he returns to Judah in full confidence believing that God is providing for him, believing that God will watch over and protect and establish his kingdom. And so there, David is anointed king over Judah and Hebron by the men of Judah, verse 4. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David king over the house of Judah. This comes after David's having been anointed by Samuel years earlier. You remember we saw the private anointing of Samuel many years earlier, of David by Samuel many years earlier when it was revealed to David that he was going to become king over Israel. In that very first anointing, the Holy Spirit had come upon David and had departed from Saul, and God was at work. Now the time has come for a public proclamation of David's kingship. This anointing is a more modest anointing. 
it comes at the hands of the people. However, the previous anointing had been a private anointing. This anointing is a public anointing. It is a celebration. It is the people's recognition of David as king that is emphasized. If you look at verse 4, and the men of Judah came, and the men of Judah came. This isn't something that is done by a priest. This was done by the people, and in particular the people of Judah. Now, for the first time, David is publicly recognized as king. As we think about the application, it's important to keep in mind that David is clearly within the will of God. All that David is doing is in keeping with God's word. God had told him that he was to be king. God had told him to go to the land of Hebron. God had told him to settle there. David is doing everything that God tells him to do. So one might expect, having done all that God had told him to do, and having this wonderful promise that he's going to be king, that now everything is just going to run smoothly, everything is just going to be great, it's going to be hunky-dory, and we're going to read that life is you know, just great, and David lives happily ever after. But that's not the case. That's not the case. You know, sometimes people think that if they are, quote, unquote, in the center of the will of God, if they are living their life exactly the way that God would have them to live, if they are doing what God would have them to do, then they can be assured that they won't have any troubles, they won't have any trials, they won't have any difficulties, that all will be sweet. All they need to do is follow the will of God. Well, this passage teaches us that that's far from the truth. You can be at the very heart of the will of God. You can be doing exactly what God would have you to do and still face opposition, still face hardship, still face difficulty. If anyone would teach us that truth, it would be Job, who was doing all that God would have him to do and yet found all these struggles and difficulties, and most significantly, the Lord Jesus himself, who delighted to do the will of the Father, but met constant obstacle, constant opposition, and ultimately crucifixion. So being in the will of God does not guarantee that life is just one bed of roses. Number two, David experiences kingdom struggles despite the fact that David graciously reaches out and invites others to join his kingdom. David expresses appreciation for those at Jabesh Gilead in their treatment of Saul after his death. Now, it's been a few weeks since we've been in 2 Samuel, so let me just remind you of where we are. David was killed, excuse me, Saul was killed in battle along with Jonathan. And if you remember, his body was taken, he was decapitated, and put on display in order for the Philistines to, to mock, to ridicule not only the Israelites, but God himself in their victory over Israel and in their understanding of a victory over God. But these people from Jabesh Gilead, they were courageous, they were valiant, and they did not want to see Saul defamed, and they did not want to see God ridiculed, and so at great personal danger they went and captured the bodies and heads of Saul and brought them back to give him an honorable burial. One might wonder how David would respond 
to these people of Jabesh Gilead in their desire to uh, honor Saul after his death. Would David be jealous? Would David see this as an opposition to his kingship? Would David be annoyed or upset with them for honoring Saul in this way? After all, Saul was the one who was out to kill David. Would he see this as a personal affront to his kingship? How would he respond? Well, as we saw two weeks ago, or three weeks ago, David himself honored Saul after his death. And David was pleased when others did as well. David makes it clear to these men that he is not angry with them for having demonstrated continued allegiance to and respect for Saul. Far from it. He is pleased that Saul has been honored after his death. Look at verse 4. And the men of Judah came, and there they anointed David, the king of the house of Judah. And now these words. When they told David it was the men of Jabesh-Gilead who had buried Saul, David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord, because you have showed this loyalty to Saul, your Lord, and buried him. So precisely because of their act of allegiance for Saul, David praises them and seeks God's blessing. He is not at all antagonistic. He is not at all affronted, but rather just the opposite. He is pleased with and praises their dedication to Saul. David expresses a desire for the people of Jabesh-Gilead to experience a blessing. First, David wants them to experience a blessing from the Lord in verse 5. David sent messengers to the men of Jabesh-Gilead and said to them, May you be blessed by the Lord. May God bless you. And then again in verse 6. Verse 6, Now may the Lord show steadfast love and faithfulness to you. So he wants them to prosper under God's direction. He's going to be praying and interceding for these men of Jabesh-Gilead. And secondly, David himself wants to be a blessing to them at the end of verse 6. And I will do good to you because you have done this thing. David wants them to know that he's not going to harm them in any way. He is not going to bring any retaliation against them. He is not going to see them as rebellious that deserve some kind of punishment for their continued allegiance to Saul. No. He says, I intend to bless you. I intend to watch over you. I intend to protect you. I will not harm you in any way. So David extends an invitation to the people of Jabesh-Gilead to join his kingdom, verse 7. Now therefore, now therefore, based on this reality, based on the fact that I'm not going to punish you, based on the fact that I'm going to bless you, based on the fact that I want God to bless you, therefore, let your hands be strong and be valiant. For Saul your Lord is dead. He is inviting them to become a part of his kingdom since Saul has died. Now that regime is over. So now, cast your lot with me. But David realizes that it would take a great deal of courage for the people of Jabesh Gilead to side with David. For he says in verse 7, Now therefore let your hands be strong and be valiant. 
This was going to take a different kind of courage than the people of Jabesh of Gilead had demonstrated previously. Previously, they had shown themselves strong and valiant because they were willing to take on the Philistines and go and take the body and the head of Saul back to their land and honor it. That took courage. David says, now you have to have a different kind of courage. Now you're going to have to stand up to your fellow Israelites. Now you're going to have to stand up to the other tribes who are not recognizing me as king. Now you're going to have to have the courage to associate yourself with me. End of verse 7. And the house of Judah has anointed me king over them. Now he invites them to join with the house of Judah. Application. It is good to keep in mind the courage that is necessary for people to associate themselves with God's kingdom. David intends to be a blessing to the nation of Israel. He tells them, I'm going to pray for you. He tells them that I'm going to watch over you. I'm going to protect you. David's going to be a good king. And says, join me in my kingdom. But he recognizes that these men of Jabesh Gilead are going to experience opposition. Unfortunately, it's not going to be opposition from the Philistines. It's going to be opposition from the Israelites themselves. It's going to be opposition from the other tribes. He's saying, exercise your leadership. You've already exercised your leadership in the way in which you responded to Saul's death. Now, exercise your leadership in response to my kingdom. That takes courage. It takes courage. So, it takes courage for people to identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. It takes courage for people to acknowledge Jesus as their Savior and Lord and to identify and affiliate with God's people, the church. Or all too often, their own family members stand in opposition. Their own friends do not want to see them make that choice, do not support them in those desires that regard them as foolish or, at best, deceived if they're going to place their faith and trust in Christ and turn over this whole new leaf and now associate with God's people. It's helpful for us to, to remember as we invite people to join God's kingdom, as we desire what is best and right for them, as we want them to experience God's blessing and God's forgiveness. It's important that we are able to understand the reticence that people have, or it's going to affect our response those people. David is going to continue to be compassionate towards the people of Jabesh Gilead. He isn't just going to look at them as rebels, and he certainly isn't going to look at them as the enemy. But rather, David is going to have compassion and mercy upon these individuals, even as we need to be careful that we don't look at those who do not trust in Christ as enemies, but rather that we continue in a gracious, winsome, compassionate outreach desire for them to experience the blessings of the kingdom. <clears throat> David's response 
to Saul's death should have been a motivating element of the people of Jabesh Gilead of recognizing David as their king. They should have been moved as they thought about the kind of king that David was, how superior he was in his response to the people as opposed to Saul. David's mercy, David's compassion, David's forgiving spirit. You know, it's incredible that David didn't rejoice when Saul died, but rather lamented Saul's death. When you think of all that Saul had done to David, but David doesn't respond in any negative way whatsoever. In fact, in fact, is pleased with those that seek to honor Saul. And you would think that it would have an impact upon the way in which the people of Jabesh Gilead would have looked at David, but it didn't, but it didn't. Instead, they became uh, dubious of David's motives. David was going to have to prove himself. He was going to have to prove his sincerity. He was going to have to demonstrate that what he said was more than words, but he was going to put them into action. Namely, that he desired the Lord to bless them and that he himself was going to be a blessing to those individuals. David was going to have to prove that. David was going to have to live that out. And unfortunately, there are many people that question the motives of the church and the motives of God's people as to why we are reaching out, why it is that we want to see others identify with the Lord Jesus Christ. There are a lot of people that think that that stems from an authoritative spirit. We just want to dominate. We, we just want to have our opinion forced upon others. We just want to bring other people into conformity. We're not really concerned about them. We don't really care about them, but we are so narrow-minded that we are going to force our beliefs and practices upon others. They're dubious about what motivates us, about the kind of kingdom that we are really going to establish, and what role they're going to play in that kingdom. Are they going to be really welcomed? Or they're going to be second-class citizens. So David is going to have to prove himself, not only to the people of Jabesh Gilead, but all the rest of the tribes of Israel. That what he says is true. And we need to realize that we have to prove to the fallen world in which we live the sincerity of our faith, the reality of our concern. That it isn't just words but it's lived out in practice. That we show and demonstrate that we want to be a blessing to others. We want to be a help to others. We don't want to view them as our enemies, but we want to view them as people that are potentially a part of the kingdom of God. Those reconciling actions that initially are not well received, but David will continue on with those reconciling, reconciling actions because it's the right thing to do. It's the right thing to do. David is going to conduct himself in the way in which God would have him conduct himself. 
And that ultimately needs to be our motivation as well. Not just how effective is it, not how many people we win to Christ, but simply because of how God would have us respond to others. That should govern. That, that should be the ultimate test in the back of our minds as we relate to a fallen world. What would God have us to do? How would he want us to act? What is the proper way to demonstrate the kingdom of God? Then thirdly, David experiences kingdom struggles despite the fact that Saul has died. David experiences kingdom struggles despite the fact that Saul has died. Saul's commander and Saul's son take up the mantle of resisting David's kingship. David's kingdom, and more importantly, God's kingdom, is continued to be resisted. This is the focal point of the narrative, an illustrative of what is going to take place in the ensuing chapters. Though Saul is dead, nevertheless, the opposition to David's kingship lives on. And note the repeated reference to Saul in verse 8. But Abner, the son of Ner, now these words, commander of Saul's army, took Ishbosheth, now these words, the son of Saul, and brought him to Mahanaim. Abner, the commander of Saul's army, appoints Ishbosheth, Saul's son, as king over Israel. Verse 9. And he made him king over Gilead and the Asherites and Jezreel and Ephraim and Benjamin and all Israel. But don't lose sight of the reference to the commander of Saul's army and the son of Saul. It would have been easy to think that once Saul is dead, he's dead. And finally, David is going to experience the establishment of the kingdom and the persecution is going to be over and all the struggles are going to end because Saul's off the scene. But just because Saul's off the scene doesn't mean that there aren't remnants, that there is not a continuation of that rebellious spirit and that persecutorial spirit. If David would have thought, and if his hope would have been, I just can't wait till Saul's dead. <laughs> I just can't wait till he's out of the picture. I, I, I just can't wait until finally I'm free from Saul. Then life is going to be a cakewalk. Then everything's going to be great. That wasn't the case. That wasn't the case. And we too have to guard against a mindset that says, Life is miserable because of this one thing. You know, I just can't wait until this is over. And when this is over, then finally, I'm going to be able to enjoy life. Finally, everything's going to be great. Finally, there's going to be peace in the church. Finally, finally, all we have to do is wait for this one thing to pass. That's not how life works. But we find that we move from struggle to struggle to struggle to struggle. There's something else to replace it. Until Jesus comes, there's going to be opposition to his kingdom. Until Jesus comes, the evil one is going to be at work. Until Jesus comes, 
We are constantly going to have to make decisions of standing for him and opposing evil and wrongdoing. Until Jesus comes, there's going to be a negative connotation to God's kingdom. Until Jesus comes, there are going to be people that are going to stand in opposition to what the church of God is doing. We can't just look at a single event and say, when that is done, finally, finally, Eureka, Utopia, peace, and heaven on earth. No. no. It's going to take patience. It's going to take perseverance. It's going to take continued allegiance to the Lord God. As this narrative unfolds, initially the kingdom is, is divided. Ishbosheth reigns over the larger part of the kingdom in verse 10. Ishbosheth's son was 40 years old and began to reign over Israel. He reigned two years. David reigns over the smaller portion of the kingdom, end of verse 10. But the house of Judah followed David. So by far, the larger part is with Ishbosheth, and the minority is with David. This continues for a period of time, verse 11. And the time that David was king in Hebron over the house of Judah was seven years and six months. We're talking about a period of time. Seven years and six months is a long time. It's a long time that David has to put up with this particular situation. We now see Abner's role in this divisiveness. Abner went on the offensive. Remember, Abner is the uh, commander of Saul's army. Verse 12, Abner, the son of Ner, and the servants of Ishbosheth, the son of Saul, went out from Mahanaim to Gibeon. It is Abner's attempt to force Judah into submission to Ishbosheth. Joab goes out to meet him. This was a defensive move on Joab's part, verse 13. And Joab, the son of Zariah, and the servants of David, went out and met them at the pool of Gibeon. And they sat down, one on the one side of the pool and the other on the other side of the pool. So they begin a negotiation. Abner proposes a war by proxy, verse 14. And Abner said to Joab, let the young men arise and compete before us. And Job said, Joab said, let them arise. So Joab says, let's not fight a big battle here. Let's, let's not everybody go to war. Let's choose uh, prime warriors from each side. Let them fight it out. And whoever wins, wins. So that we don't have to go to battle army to army. Well, the war by proxy ends in a tie. Verses 15 to 16. Then they arose, passed over by number, twelve for Benjamin, and Ishbosheth the son of Saul, and twelve of the servants of David. And each caught his opponent by the head and thrust his sword in his opponent's side, so they fell down together. Therefore the place was called Elkath Azarim, which is at Gibeon. So it's a tie. An ensuing all-out battle occurs with Abner and his men being defeated, verse 17. And the battle was fierce that day, and Abner and the men of Israel were beaten before the servants of David. So David's army wins. Then we have an account of what transpires between Abner and 
Azahel. First, we're reminded that Azahel is Joab's brother. Verse 18. And the three sons of Zariah were there, Joab, Abishai, and Azahel. Just so you don't forget, these are three brothers. Azahel relentlessly chases down Abner. Verses 19 through 21. And Azahel pursued Abner, and as he went, he turned neither to the right hand nor the left from following Abner. Then Abner looked behind him and said, Is it you, Azahel? And he answered, It is I. And Abner said to him, Turn aside to your right hand or to your left, and seize one of the young men and take his spoil. But Azahel would not turn aside from following him. Abner issues a warning to Azahel, verse 22. Abner said to, again to Azahel, Turn aside from following me. What should I why should I strike you to the ground? How then could I lift up my face to your brother Joab? But Azahel refuses, and Azahel dies at Abner's hand, verse 23. But he refused to turn aside. Therefore Abner struck him in the stomach with the butt of his spear, so that the spear came out of his back. And he fell there and died where he was. And all who came to the place where Azahel had fallen and died stood still. It was an incredible sight. Despite Abner's opposition to David's kingship, Abner becomes a sympathetic figure. Azahel brothers continues to chase Abner, verse 24, but Abner, Joab, and Abishel pursued Abner. <clears throat> Abner and the tribe Benjamin take a stand at the top of the hill, verse 25. And the people of Benjamin gathered themselves together behind Abner and became one group and took their stand on the top of the hill. So Abner reaches out to Joab, verse 26. Then Abner called to Joab, Shall the sword devour forever? Do you not know that the end will be bitter? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of your brothers? Abner wants Joab to stop pursuing him and his men. Abner appears to Joab on the basis of their being brothers, verse 26. Abner called to Joab and said, shall the sword devour forever? Are we going to fight endlessly? Do you not know that the end will be bitter, that this is going to turn out bad? How long will it be before you tell your people to turn from the pursuit of their brothers? Now, there are a number of ironies in these statements of Abner. First, Azahel was a true brother of Joab, whose death he is seeking to avenge. There's no mention of that. Secondly, Abner all of a sudden becomes concerned for his fellow brothers who are Israelites. This is very self-serving, as we're going to see in just a moment. This appeal to Joab to have mercy because these are your brothers you're fighting. Remember, Abner brings on the battle. Remember, Abner starts all this and he starts this against his brothers. So, this is pretty feigned speech on his behalf. All right, he's, he's clasping at straws. He is trying to gain Joab's sympathy. And yet there's truth to this. There is pain, there's agony associated with this. The closest thing that we can relate to in this whole ordeal is the Civil War. When literally brothers were fighting against brothers. When families were divided. When some were for the North and some were for the South. 
some wore union uniforms and some wore Confederate uniforms. They marched under different flags and they were killing each other off. And yes, that was sad. It was sad. And here, Abner says to Joab, we are brothers fighting brothers. Shouldn't this stop? Shouldn't this end? Are we going to allow this to continue? Joab responds reasonably. Verse 27, Joab said, As God lives, if you had not spoken, surely the men would have given up the pursuit of your brothers until the morning. He says, if you wouldn't have said something, by morning you would have been dead. If you wouldn't have reached out, Joab says, you would have been a goner. You and your men. We had you surrounded. So, the fighting ceases. Verse 28. So Joab blew the trumpet. And all the men stopped and pursued Israel no more, nor did they fight anymore. So all of David's army, all of David's men stopped. Okay. You're our brothers. We're not going to fight with you anymore. We're going home. Abner and his men flee, verse 29. And Abner and his men went all that, that night through the Arabah. They crossed the Jordan, and marching the whole morning, they came to Mahanaim. Joab had a decisive victory, verse 30. And Joab returned from the pursuit of Abner. And when he gathered all the people together, there were missing from David's servants 19 men besides Azahel. For the servants of David had struck down of Benjamin 360 of Abner's men. Azahel is honored, verse 32, and they took up Azahel and buried him in the tomb of his father, which was at Bethlehem. And Joab and his men marched all night, and the day broke upon them at Hebron. Abner's stopping the fighting was self-serving. The fighting did not end by any means. They escaped. They escaped. But Abner's words were a ploy. They were just to buy him time. They were to save his skin and the skin of his men. He really wasn't concerned about his brothers. He really wasn't concerned about David and his army. He was just concerned about preserving his own life. Or if you notice chapter 3, verse 1, there was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. And David grew stronger and stronger while the house of Saul became weaker and weaker. It ended the battle, but it didn't end the war. Abner is going to go back and be back to his old tricks. Back to his old tricks. And yet, and yet, Joab had done what was right. Joab did what was right. And you can look at it pragmatically and say, 
he had Abner exactly where he wanted him. He should have finished him off. But he was a brother. But he was a brother. And it is for that reason, because he's a brother, that David laments when Saul dies. That David laments when Abner dies. We will see in chapters to come. That David laments when his opponents die. Because they're, they're brothers. They're brothers. People, no matter what a Christian does to you, no matter what a Christian says to you, no matter how wrongly you have been treated by a brother or sister in Christ, they're our brother and our sister, and they need to be forgiven, and they need to be accepted, and they need to be welcomed. And we must pray for God's blessing upon them and back that up with our own desire to see them blessed and welcomed. Our brothers and sisters in Christ should never be viewed as our enemy. These weren't the Philistines. These were the people of Israel. These were the people that David was to rule over. These were the people that David was to care for. And David and his men will be faithful. Now, Joab's going to have his problems. We're going to see in the next few chapters. But the principle here is so important. Remember, the reason that Joab is pursuing Abner so relentlessly is because Abner has killed Joab's brother, Azahel. But when Joab says, we are brothers, that union in God is greater than the physical union of the family. He's able to forgive Abner on the basis of he being a brother in the kingdom of Israel. Kingdom struggles. Kingdom struggles. They never end. They never end. We can think just like David, when Saul's finally dead, then it's going to be over. We can, we can think as soon as something happens, then it's going to be over. But it's never over. The kingdom struggles go on and on and on until Jesus returns. There will always be need for forgiveness. There will always be need for reaching out. There will always be need for seeking God's support and our giving support to one another in Christ. We must not grow weary in well-doing. We must not be discouraged when we feel taken advantage of. 
We must, in some senses, be naive. I doubt very much that Joab really believed when he went home that he wasn't going to have to face Abner again. But he knew what he needed to do. And he did it. We forgive because it's the right thing to do. Not because we never have to forgive again. But simply because it's the right thing to do. This is a part of establishing God's kingdom. This was what David was called to do. This is the kind of king David was to be. Because David's kingship was to represent God's kingship. And that's what God is like. God forgives us repeatedly, even when we have rebelled against him. He continues to reach out to us. He continues to welcome us. He continues to bless us. That's what we're called to do. That's the kingdom that's to be established. Let's pray. Almighty God, we rejoice in your great goodness and grace to us. Help us to live as kingdom people. Help us to love our brothers and sisters in Christ, no matter what, no matter what, because they are brothers and sisters. Lord, bless your kingdom. Bless your people. Give us a kind and winsome spirit. Lord, help us to do what is right and pleasing in your sight. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray.